And today, eggs. Specifically, how you can learn everything you need to know about Putin's Russia from the current egg crisis. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. So I'm recording this on Friday the 7th of January, so happy Christmas for those who observe the Russian Orthodox calendar. It was interesting that uh, whereas last time we had Putin very symbolically alone at midnight mass for Christmas, this time, of course, he was with families of soldiers from, from the uh, special military operation, signalling always. But on the other hand, certainly no talk or promise of any kind of Christmas ceasefire. Quite the opposite. We, we saw further sort of tit-for-tat attacks in both directions between Russia and Ukraine on the other side's cities. So not much Christmas spirit there. Anyway, what I really want to talk about are eggs. Now, I've mentioned this in a previous podcast and then in greater length on a piece that uh, should be appearing shortly on the Spectator Coffeehouse blog. But I really want to kind of expand on this whole issue of the current egg crisis with the possibly overblown thesis that everything you need to know about Putin's Russia, or at least 10 key issues, 10 key lessons, you can learn from this current egg crisis. Now, look, you may think I'm, I'm cracked, that my wits are scrambled, and to a degree I am indeed poaching from my spectator piece. But this is no yoke. So bear with me as I whisk you into world. I, I really think that's about all the... Uh, oven-based puns I can possibly think of right now, which, is, which you'll probably think is, is quite excellent. Anyway, I whisk you into a world where eggs rose in price by over 46% last year, and in some reasons, it, regions it was over 50%, where there's hoarding, long queues at farmers' markets, and shops even selling single eggs. And then in the Vologda region, I think it was, a deputy in the local parliament for, obviously, United Russia, was, was photographed giving cartons of eggs to his staff as presents for the traditional Orthodox New Year. This may all sound a bit um, silly, but we should remember that although the fall of the House of the Romanovs in 1917 may well have been a long time coming, but arguably the, the, the flashpoint that really triggered the protests which really drove the eventual collapse of the regime was of course triggered by bread prices. So it would have been deeply ironic if another Russian autocrat had, had fallen to food-related protests. And this might help explain quite why the Kremlin has been moving so decisively to try and address this particular egg crisis. Indeed, on Friday, we had the investigatory committee, you know, the sort of loosely the FBI on steroids type thing, launching a probe into potential price fixing. And this follows a very sort of similar initiative by Prosecutor General Krasnov. And perhaps even more dramatically, 
we've got the FSB, which has been instructed to arrest egg hoarders. Now, so what? Well, this is the first of the ten lessons. It is that the involvement of the security forces is in part a reflection of this sort of perennial feature of this very sort of personalistic and frankly almost medieval system. Everyone wants to prove to the monarch that they are busy helping fix the problem of the day. And this is why we, we, we tend to get this process time and time again, that something arises, something comes on to Putin's radar, and everyone, whether it's local governors, whether it's security apparatus, whether it's the prime minister and the apparatus of government or whatever, are scrambling to prove, actually no, that wasn't intended to be another egg-related pun, scrambling to prove that they themselves actually have some part in, in the solution because they're terrified that if they don't, their rivals will outflank them. Now, on one level, this actually is in some ways a perversely useful thing. It means that a lot of the sort of bureaucratic siloing that we're used to in you know, rational, bureaucratic, democratic Western systems, which, let's be honest, are often quite sclerotic, quite hard, you know, find it very difficult to respond to the crises of the day, but yeah, actually, you know, a lot of that breaks down in the adhocracy. That in fact, you know, people can scramble quite quickly and be more imaginative about how they respond to something. So there is, we have to, you know, recognise an advantage. But the advantage is precisely in crisis management. What it's not, what the system isn't good at, is avoiding the crises in the first place. Again, because frankly, people do not coordinate, people regard everyone else as potential rivals, and where you are meant to have you know, inter-agency negotiations, often this takes a very, very antagonistic form. So you know, what we see here is, on the one hand, perhaps a sign of actually the strength of the Putin system, its ability to respond to these crises hurriedly, because everyone realises, to, to put it bluntly, their neck is on the chopping block, potentially. But on the other hand, arguably this whole crisis is precisely because a variety of agencies from the Ministry of Agriculture down did not properly coordinate beforehand. So good at crisis management, not good at crisis avoidance. But the second lesson, which is shown by the immediate involvement of the security apparatus, is precisely this, the very real fear that this crisis could easily, I'm going to have to try and think of another word to use other than crisis, could spark a wider political problem. And it was quite interesting the degree to which this was crystallised by a case at the end of December, where someone fired pot shots at the car that was carrying Gennady Shiryaev, who is the owner of the biggest poultry farm in Voronezh region, which I have no idea, I will confess, whether that's a really impressive achievement or not. I don't know how large the overall poultry holdings in Voronezh may be. I could have looked into it, but honestly, I couldn't be bothered. But anyway, he clearly is a, a local big shot. And the interesting thing is that this attack on him, which didn't hurt anyone, happened a couple of days after it was announced that an investigation was being opened into him, or rather his company, for alleged price fixing. Now, Shiryaev has faced controversy in the past. I mean, if one looks at April of last year, for example, he and one of his men allegedly assaulted a fellow farmer and environmental campaigner who had accused him of dumping toxic waste into the Khapyor River, um, which is uh, 
Well, let's be perfectly honest. I mean, it's hard for me to tell, but judging by the news accounts, it sounds as if it may well have been entirely true. But nonetheless, despite that, despite the fact that he's clearly, you know, is involved in politics, particularly in terms of United Russia, he's, I think it's his brother, who is, a, again, a local deputy, um, and, and other deals. Nonetheless, the police very, very quickly ascribed this incident to what they call locals dissatisfied with the increase in prices of his eggs. A constant concern of the security apparatus, after all, is that all their hard work suppressing the political opposition could be undone by economic problems. The, the, the belief is, the assumption is, that yes, people may come out onto the streets for political causes, but not most people, not most of the time, and it's relatively easier to diffuse this by targeting the specific political leaders. Whether we're talking you know, liberals like Navalny or turbo patriots like Strelkov Girkin or whatever. On the other hand, economic issues, economic problems, hardships like that are much more likely to create the kind of horizontal connections from which grassroots movements, ones which may well not really have leaders and the like and therefore be harder to decapitate, can emerge. And I remember a retired FSB officer once put it to me, he said, it's going to be wage arrears or food shortages that one day may bring Russians out on the streets. And then they will decide if this is a revolution of the left or the right. In other words, they come out onto the streets first because they're angry, because they're hungry or whatever. And then in some ways, from that movement emerges the politics. And whether it's ultra-nationalists who say the answer is to, you know, drive out the foreign money or whatever, or whether it's liberals who say we need to get rid of the corrupt state. In some ways, that's a secondary issue. Now, what's particularly interesting is that this guy, and look, there's only there's a distinct limit to how many FSB people I ever got a chance to talk to that I know of, did not come from the central apparatus or from the Moscow directorate, which, you know, as you'd expect, is not a kind of typical regional directorate. It's a little bit like... To give an example, I mean, the British Metropolitan Police is technically the police for Greater London, less the City of London. But because of its size, because of its location, it also has a kind of strategic role in terms of providing central services that also cross the country. Well, to a degree, the Moscow FSB directorate is like that. No, he was from one of the genuine regional FSB directorates. And that gives him a very different perspective. And I once asked him what really his job was, and he framed it as this. It was making sure that if there's going to be a Russian solidarity movement, referring to the Polish trade union, which emerged in the shipyards of Gdansk at the end of the 1970s and then became a national movement and essentially forced the Polish government to declare martial law. Anyway, that if there's going to be a Russian solidarity, it doesn't happen in his region. Now, OK. I would suggest that his choice of metaphor reflected to a degree the fact that he came from a diplomatic family and his parents had been in Poland in the early 1980s. So, you know, he obviously particularly exposed to that particular sort of idiom of, of national protest. But still, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting that he very much is looking for something that is going to start with the economy and then become political and indeed can then in the long term, bring down the regime. 
So I would suggest that lesson three from this crisis is that we may think that the regime looks really solid, but we should never underestimate the fears and paranoias of dictatorships and those peoples whose jobs it is to maintain them. And this probably goes doubly for Vladimir Putin. You know, remember, you know, he was there when East Germany collapsed and how strong East Germany looked until really relatively, not even 11th hour, but 11th hour and maybe 59th minute. So we shouldn't be surprised the regime gets very worried when genuinely national, i.e. not regional or industry specific, economic problems arise that speak directly to absolutely fundamental questions of can you afford to eat? So the state's goal is precisely to try and prevent things from getting that bad before they have a serious problem. You know, prophylaxis, dealing with it first, that was a central element of the KGB under Yuri Andropov, who you know, we told Putin respects, or, you know, regarded as a sort of a great figure. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that one looks at the current senior management within the FSB and beyond, these people are precisely of the Andropov generation. So they will very much look at, you know, they don't want to have to deal with crises, they want to prevent crises. And this is one of the reasons why, as well as using the apparatus of repression, you know, there's been a lot of efforts made to try and find new suppliers, which is a bit of a problem because you know, for over a decade, Russia has been proudly near enough self-sufficient in eggs. They produce something like, I don't know, 98% of, of their own needs, topping up with some imports from Belarus, and that's it. But nonetheless, in December, in response to these sort of skyrocketing prices, the government uh, temporarily lifted import duties on eggs for the next six months, and they also began soliciting emergency imports. And already we've had, what, about a million eggs from Azerbaijan arriving and now Turkey is also moving into the market. We've had the first batch of 316,000 eggs arriving on the 3rd of January. May sound impressive until you realize that in fact such is the size of this market that in, in order to have an appreciable impact on the price you'd need to be basically getting in something like 500 million eggs each month. So in that context, 1.3 million is good enough for some newspaper stories saying things are changing, but not really going to change facts on the ground. But of course, you know, there, there are limits with this. The first of which is the fact that you'll need to be spending what we can go back to starting to call hard currency, valuta. Azerbaijan, certainly not Turkey, are not going to take rubles. So this is actually something in which the... The Russian economy, which in some ways is able to avoid the issue of the fact that the ruble is distinctly wobbly in price at the moment, because so much of its transfers are internal, it's ruble for ruble. But nonetheless, it is going to face problems when it has to import things, and, and eggs are just one more of them. And also, this becomes a political issue. It's worth noting, for example, at the... Uh, Supreme Council of the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, that's a title, that anyway, they, they met in St. Petersburg. Belarus's Lukashenko, who after all, it's worth remembering, is a former collective farmer boss, couldn't resist a jab, saying, 
we've achieved a high level of food self-sufficiency, which in Belarus is almost 100%. We cover our domestic needs in grain, pork, meat, poultry, milk, vegetables, vegetable oils, and eggs. And Putin, well, I mean, he kind of smiled and joked in reply, saying, oh, give us a little, don't be greedy. But I went back and actually looked at that footage, and I must admit, I did not think that Putin was exactly enjoying the joke there. So, two more lessons come out of this. First of all, that there are limits to how far Russia can depend on rubles. To a degree, what we're currently seeing is the Russian economy managing to not just flout sanctions, but in some ways flout basic economics. But there are limits to how far you can do that. And a second and much, much more specific little lesson that we still need to remember. Belarus is not simply a vassal state. Lukashenko may well be, to a considerable extent, dependent now on Putin, but he still has autonomy and he clings to that. And why that matters is, again, that, that we have to bear in mind. When it comes down to it, Putin only has the friends he can afford to buy. Whether it's Belarus, whether it's China, whether it's African nations or whatever, he has no allies. No one is going to give him anything. They may, on the other hand, be willing to sell him. So you can't expect there to be a dramatic change in the, in the situation because of what happens outside Russia. No one is going to come to Russia's aid. And in this circumstance, it's, Putin was even forced to make a, one of his rather rare apologies at last month's marathon direct line town hall come press conference. But, of course, as ever, he blamed it on others. It wasn't a real apology. He called it a failure of the government's work. And it's worth mentioning that when one uses the specific form in this context of the government, what that means is the Council of Ministers. So he is dumping on someone else. As ever, his, his apology is essentially, I apologise for trusting other people who screwed up. That's as far as you're ever going to get from Putin. But that also means a threat for others. So lesson number six is precisely that Putin will always dump the blame on other people. Even the smallest complex tasks, they fall to his underlings, whoever they may be. He will take the credit. The blame has to go somewhere else. And in this context, clearly, the person who's in the firing line, I mean, in part, it seems like uh, Rasiel, I keep getting it mixed up, another one is long, long sort of um, titles, Rasiel Chodznadzor, that's it, which is the, the Federal Service for Veterinary and Phytosanitary Surveillance. But primarily, not just the governors and so forth, but the Ministry of Agriculture. Now, let me just dwell on that. Who is the Minister for Agriculture? One Dmitry Patrushev, son of Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council. If you believe some of the wild rumours, the man who actually is in charge of the government now, which I don't believe. But on the other hand, one of the figures who is, as I've talked about in the previous podcast, generally profiled as a potential, maybe Prime Minister, but maybe even President. As I said in that, in that particular segment, I, I do have my doubts as to whether he'll be president, but still, he, his is one of the names that does tend to crop up. And now we find him very much in the firing line. 
remember, I mean, actually, again, going back to that big press conference thing, he was the butt of, yes, I don't think that's a pun, of Putin's rather crude and crass joke, um, where using the Russian slang for testicles, he said that he'd asked the minister how his eggs were doing. Now, Putin does this. First of all, again, he, he likes to somehow you know, sound a bit common and sound a bit sort of man of the people. But also these quote-unquote jokes often tend to be regarded as warnings. I've got my eye on you. And certainly Patrushev Jr. seems to have realized this, because a few days later at the United Russia Congress, you know, he admitted, I felt that I needed to work better, but still probably I didn't really fully cope with the task. Nevertheless, I think that the president will give me one more chance to correct this price. You know, he, he may well feel the metaphorical, I should stress, high win window gaping for him. Because three weeks ago, he predicted prices would decline within a month. And two weeks ago, he told Komsomolskaya Pravda, the newspaper, in the future, in order to prevent such distortions and act proactively, we will build a system for monitoring demand for all key food products. This will make it possible to quickly record if demand begins to grow somewhere and to orient the industry in advance to increase production volumes in this area. I mean, he is not a natural wordsmith. But remember that point about him actually also not just promising to do something about it, not just promising that prices will go down, but saying that this sort of system will be developed in order to orient the industry. So I'm going to come on to that later. So basically, Patrushev realizes, Patrushev Jr., realizes that his career may be on the line. He's promised quite quick results in a quite a specific time frame. And nonetheless, progress, frankly, so far at least, has been limited, has been patchy. And particularly interestingly, the degree to which, although it has some limited traction on the national media, it definitely has been toned down, but it's still, in, from looking around, dominating local news across the country. I mean, let me just give some examples. There's, there's for example, Krasnoyarsk region. That's where prices had risen by 42% last year. But nonetheless, they, they were not sure. Certainly the local authorities were quick to trumpet last week that the price of a dozen eggs had fallen from 149 to 119 rubles. So still a bit higher than people are used to, but nonetheless, you know, quite, quite a distinct fall. Similarly, in Penza region, you had the local government very sort of proudly noting that the price of eggs there was 5% below the national average. On the other hand, if you are in Karelia, up in the, the northwest, well, there apparently fraudsters have been offering suspiciously cheap eggs online and simply pocketing the deposits paid up front by desperate or gullible punters. So lesson number seven that comes from this, we should always be aware of the regional dimension. And it's not just the, the obvious one of Moscow and maybe St. Petersburg versus the rest, or even urban versus rural. You know, there, there are huge variations in not just the quality of life, but the politics, even, even the outlook that we find across this huge country. You know, if you're in Khabarovsk or Blagoveshchensk on the Chinese border, 
what happens in Beijing is often almost as important as what happens in Moscow. And incidentally, there apparently the egg issue is much, much less of a problem. Why? Because eggs are being bought legally across the border, and even more importantly, in the, on an even larger scale, illegally. If you are a shopper, you may, in, in say, Khabarovsk, you quite possibly just simply take the ferry across the, the, the river that is also the national border. You go to supermarkets in China, you buy the goods you want, and then you just simply take it back. No one's going to look in your bag. No one cares. So, I mean, in this respect, this is a useful reminder precisely of the fact of just how varied the perspectives are. And before I move on, I think it's time for a quick break, quick slurp of lemon tea, and then we will return to lessons eight, nine, and indeed ten. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Now, before I resume my egg-related ruminations, just a quick note. Uh, obviously, my, my patrons had their 12 days of shadowy Christmas, various bits and pieces sent their way. Two elements of those, which were book review segments, will be coming out for general sort of consumption towards the end of this month. The first one covers Thomas Graham's Getting Russia Right, Richard Sackwer's The Lost Peace, and Leon Aron's Riding the Tiger. And the second one, Maria Popova and Oksana Chevelle's Russia and Ukraine, Simon Schuster's The Showman on Zelensky, and Andrew Harding's A Small Stubborn Town. Now, as I said, these, these will be coming out generally, so you'll have a couple of little mini-podcasts available. But I plan to have a few more book review, you know, comparative book review segments. Feedback would be very greatly appreciated. Do you, do you like these things? Do you like the approach taken? And generally, are there other books in particular you'd like me to cover? I have, as you'd imagine, a stack of read, unread, half-read books that I at some point would, would like to talk about. But again, in, any recommendations, much appreciated. So, to return to matters eggy. Now, the real problem is that, look, while this crisis was ov obviously exacerbated by the, the usual human failings of hoarding, panic buying, profiteering, it also reflects, and again, something I've mentioned in the past, some really quite fundamental challenges that are facing the Russian economy. Because look, it seems to be doing really well, weathering the storm of sanctions, uh, GDP up, whatever it is, 3% maybe. But all the same, although the issue is, that, well, as far as the government is, is claiming, the issue is that uh, buoyant household income has led to overconsumption, which is a bit of a strange thing. And how often do people say, I, I'm feeling really rather solvent. Let us buy some more eggs and eat them. Not least because in that case, you'd imagine there to be underconsumption somewhere else. 
actually the issue is is the very opposite. You know, as ever, governments' attempts to spin tend to wander into the realms of outright falsehood. Actually, salaries overall, and I'd stress that overall because there are key variations, especially if you work in a defence industrial complex, but overall they're not keeping up with, with inflation, which is 7.5% across the board, but actually a lot of food products and other sort of you know, key elements of the household budget, it's distinctly more. And in particular, what we've seen is pricier sources of protein becoming frankly unaffordable or you know, much less affordable within the, the general household budget. So fish, beef, pork and the like are being substituted by chicken. And even that rose in price by 28% last year. And eggs as, as cheaper ways of, of eking out the diet. So lesson number eight is that life in Russia is unlike the Tsar Ivans. In other words, it's not great, it's not terrible. But that doesn't mean that it is not definitely eroding in quality for most. Now again, this is a slow indicator. It's not actually as if there's a sudden thing. And this is why actually the egg issue is so politically worrying for the regime, because it, it was so quick. In most cases, it's just that bit that, you know, your belt needs to be tightened a little bit more. The amount of extra assets you felt you, you would have at the end of the year, well, it's not there anymore. Those little petty luxuries that you'd look forward to being able to acquire, no, that's not going not to be next year. Again, these things tend to be lagging indicators, but they nonetheless are definitely indicators. Life is getting harder. It's not getting harder dramatically, quickly, but nonetheless, bit by bit, that is happening. There's no way of getting around it so long as, first of all, the war continues. Secondly, sanctions continue. And thirdly, the deformations to the overall economy caused by the war and sanctions continue. What investment resources there are have been channeled to the defence industrial sector. Reopening new um, you know, lines, production lines, moving to seven-day week, 24-7 production. In some cases, you know, starting to produce homegrown variants of Iranian drones, etc. But what that has meant is there just isn't any really for the civilian sector. And that's very, very strikingly clear. And if you look at the food production and processing sector, well, this still remains pretty much antiquated. And so it's very much hit by rising energy prices, because it's not very efficient, but also rising wage costs, particularly as in some cases it is having to compete with the opportunities in the military, but also in the defence industries. So you're having to basically outbid the defence plants to, to get workers. You're usually not being able to do that. So fewer workers are arguably having to do more work in machinery that's getting older and older. That's not a recipe for particular success, and it also tends to mean that this sector lacks the reserves to deal with unexpected reversals, and we've had those for them. The falling value of the ruble, for example, I mean, that makes imported machinery and vaccines and similar, and, and indeed packaging, you know, something as basic as packaging, which much of it has to be imported. Well, that is obviously now much more expensive. 
Likewise, I mean, even something as, as apparently unconnected as an increase in measles cases in Russia. Now, I don't know the actual root cause of this, but nonetheless, it is clear there have been a variety of measles outbreaks, and that has led to an increase in vaccination, as you'd expect. And that, in turn, has meant more domestic vaccine production. But the point is, the measles vaccine is based on chicken protein. Everything connects to everything else. So you need more vaccines, you need to use more chicken in that, which means there is less chicken available for egg production or meat, and therefore laws of supply and demand mean up it goes. There just isn't the spare. There isn't that sense of you know, anything that, that is available. So this is lesson number nine, the degree to which the economy is under pressure, but not necessarily in the kind of headline ways. You know, that 3% GDP increase, similar upbeat data notwithstanding, you know, we have to unpick the impact of military Keynesianism, of massive spending at the moment, which clearly to a degree also means more money in people's pockets and the like unpick that from the impact on the rest of the economy. And what we see, and this is something that, frankly, Elvira Nabulina of the Central Bank has been quite clear, using this, this parallel that, sure, you can drive a car as fast as you can for as long as you can, but in due course, that damages the car. Well, this is what we're actually seeing, is an economy that actually does not have margins does not have spare reserves of capital, production, raw materials and the like, and therefore it doesn't take much to send it out of kilter. With Putin facing re-election in March, this is exactly the kind of thing he does not want to see. Why? Look, again, the obvious thing, this is not a vote that he's going to lose, but if he is to accrue the kind of gains in credibility and legitimacy that in the election is meant, or the election theatrical spectacular, is meant to provide, then he does not want some kind of symbolic issue around which some kind of incohate coalition of just natural fed-upness can, can gather. You know, therefore, this has to be sorted. He needs a fix, and what is the kind of fix that a government like his naturally turns to? Well, I have a feeling that this is going to be one more factor that actually encourages, despite the instincts of many of it, the people within it, but nonetheless pushes the government willy-nilly into renewed state control. Now again, go back to what Patrushev was saying. We've already had the Ministry of Agriculture proposing not just a temporary export ban, but also direct price fixing. And Patrushev's promise to sort of orient the industry in advance to increase production volumes wherever he thinks it's needed speaks to a much greater role for intervention from the government apparatus over the economy. And therefore, Russia's egg crisis is not only a symptom of wider economic problems, and indeed a political challenge, it may well also nudge the regime into more, no doubt, what are intended as temporary, but the temporary can very quickly become the business-as-usual status quo, anyway, into temporary intervention and control over the economy. 
In other words, further into the kind of Soviet practices that we know did worked so, so well before. So this is lesson number 10. The more that this particular crisis continues, and the more we have similar crises, resulting in the fact that there just isn't really the adaptability within the system, and the Russians are no longer in a, in, in a state in which they can actually turn to the global market easily in order to make up for shortfalls in domestic production. Anyway, the more this goes on, the more Putin's Russia, which we must note originally started out fairly socially liberal, but certainly economically ultra-liberal. Anyway, the more it will drift into, if not North Koreanization, but certainly late Sovietism. And as I said, we know how well that worked. But while it didn't work particularly well for ordinary people, and while it didn't work particularly well for keeping up with the constant and accelerating changes in sort of global economy and technology, nonetheless, we also have to recognize just how surprisingly durable that system was. Again, it's too easy to focus on its collapse in the late 80s. But remember that you know it, it had arguably been limping on for, I don't know, really at least 15 years, it was essentially in crisis. And it collapsed, arguably, because of Gorbachev. Now, I, I don't want to sound like Putin here, but nonetheless, we have to recognize that it was precisely because Gorbachev believed in the system, thought it could be renovated, thought it could be reformed, that actually he brought about the changes that led to its collapse. If we had seen either a, a bland consensus manager like Brezhnev or a kind of authoritarian reformer of the sort of Andropov, I don't know, maybe that system would have survived even longer. The point I'm making is that you know, this, this may well help push the system into an essentially self-destructive and moribund model, but we should recognize that that doesn't mean necessarily a quick process of collapse. It's not going to work in the long term, but the long term is really quite long. But I don't want to end on such a downbeat note. So let me conclude with a little, let's call it a little Easter egg of a story which I heard from the town of Solikamsk, a, a salt town in Perm region of in Siberia. And there a local person who had bought two eggs opened them up and found that in one, the pattern in the yolk was reminiscent of the Virgin Mary. And in the other, it turned out the pattern in the yolk somehow evoked the face of Vladimir Putin. Clearly, this is a sign of what? Well, I'll leave that up to you to decide. Happy Orthodox Christmas. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. 
Until next time, keep well. <laughs>